Hi, I'm Liz Hirshnoff-Tolly, and welcome to the Capital Coffee Connection podcast. And today I'm having coffee with an incredible leader, a congresswoman. The way I want to introduce her is to talk a little bit about the concept of awe and wonder. And, you know, there is scientific proof that if you have those things, it's really good for you. And I was recently at a conference and I was listening to Professor Michelle Lani Shioda, and she is from the Arizona State University. And she is, this is her specialty. And she was talking about the work of a Dr. Dasher Keltner. And I want to read a paragraph from what his book, which is The New Science of Everyday Wonder and How It Can Transform Your Life. Because I think it's a great way for us to start. I love that. Okay. He says, wonder, the mental state of openness, questioning, curiosity, and embracing mystery arise out of experiences of awe. In our studies, people who find more everyday awe show evidence of living with wonder. They are more open to new ideas, to what is unknown, to what language can't describe, to the absurd, to seeking new knowledge, to experience itself, for example, of sound, of color, or bodily sensation, or the directions thought might take during dreams or meditation. To the strengths of virtues of other people, it should not surprise that people who feel even five minutes a day of everyday awe are more curious about art, music, poetry, new scientific discoveries, philosophy, and questions about life and death. They feel more comfortable with mysteries, with that which cannot be explained. Congresswoman Becca Bullent from Vermont, I know that this is something that you feel and you talk about. And um, we're going to get into it and we can talk about it through our conversation. But I really thought about it because I saw some place where you had said about being outside and that importance of why you love your state and being outside and having nature and feeling awe and wonder. Yes. So I hope that's a nice way for us to wonderful. It's it's actually at the core of my being. And so I'm delighted that you started with that. Actually, in the in the spring, I gave several commencement addresses at uh, universities in Vermont. And uh, each of those speeches was about the importance of awe. And Vermont is the state that has, um, my understanding is we have the um, least per capita church and synagogue attendance in the nation. But we have the highest percentage of people who get into the woods on a regular basis. And whenever I'm home in Vermont, I start my day and end my day um, outside and you know I, I take my my dog we have trails near my house and i take what is called an awe walk an awe walk okay. yes and that is to open myself up to even small parts of the natural world that are surprising to me and I, i'll give you an example um i was once out on a walk with with my dog and i noticed a painted turtle on the trail, which was already unusual. And then I noticed another one and another one. These are live turtles. These are live turtles. Okay. And basically I had come across a place in the trail where they had all decided to lay their eggs. It was like a turtle maternity wash, essentially. And I just stood there in absolute awe and rapture to this thing that I didn't understand. And I 
I leaned down and, and stayed for a few minutes. And my dog was amazing. He, he just was so chill. And I watched them laying eggs, you know, at dawn. And I walked away feeling like I had been let in on a secret of the universe. And the rest of the day was an experience of being so much more open to the world. And, and as you said, the, the research has shown also people who experience awe um, have more compassion. They have more uh, willingness to look at other perspectives. And so it's an absolute critical part of who I am. It is one of the only ways in which I can do this incredibly difficult job. Yeah. And so sometimes I start on my back porch in, in DC. I have a tiny little apartment, but it has a back porch that overlooks a lot of a lot of trees in an alley. And I just watch the birds and the squirrels and I try to quiet my brain. And so it is it's an incredibly impactful um, daily practice yeah. for people. It really can change your life. And, you know, part of the reason for this podcast is because we don't talk about politics and policy, although we're speaking with elected leaders, yeah. is to really touch base with who they are as people. And I think that I hope even by now, if we were to stop this conversation, people would get to understand the essence of who you are, because at the same time, you are a congresswoman and you are um, you were previously the Vermont state senator and the president pro terror. And you are the first woman and openly gay LGBTQ leader to represent Vermont. So while there is like this person, you also have these roles which are incredible and being firsts. Unfortunately, it took this long for you to be a first, you know, for somebody to be a first. But there has to be a first. And what I always say is that the first then make way for the next. We have to bring people up behind us on the path. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So what we're going to do now, and and we'll continue this conversation throughout, but I would like to go back to like when you were young and what it was like to grow up because you have an interesting history. Your grandfather um, was a Holocaust survivor. He was actually killed in the Holocaust. Your grandfather was killed in the Holocaust, but your father is a survivor. And he came to America as an immigrant. Yes. Yes. And then he actually turned around and then he served our country in Germany because you were born in Germany. That's right. Can you talk- an army base, yeah. And an army base. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about what it was like to grow up with an immigrant father, a mother who was American? Yes. That that's something I know from experience that the Holocaust lives on in many generations to come. Yes. I think I want to start by by just talking about when I realized just how much the Holocaust history had had impact our our family in in deep psychological emotional ways that I didn't fully right. understand as a, as a kid. Um, I moved to an apartment in uh, my my little town of Brattleboro, and my dad was helping me and my uh, spouse move into this new apartment. And a letter carrier came and said, "Oh." Becca, you used to live on so-and-so street, and this is just a natural way of talking in Vermont. And she walked away, and my dad was terrified. And he said, how does that person know where you live? How do you feel safe knowing that you are not anonymous? And my wife and I talked about it afterwards, and it was this light bulb that went on. 
it was this sense of you are safer when people do not know who you who you are and where you are. And when I ran for office, it was terrifying for my dad in particular and for my for my aunt, his older sister. And he we used to start every conversation with me after I was elected to the state senate. Do they hate you yet? Have you been vandalized yet? Is anyone slashing your tires? And and, and this is in America. Yes, yes. And I would say to my dad, look, if those things are happening, I'm not going to tell you because you're so worried. And so fragile. And so fragile. And so just know that in this moment, I feel safe. I am surrounded by people who, who love me and protect me. But that was this opening for me to understand why when I was a kid, he would get enraged when people would just stop by our house unannounced. And if he felt like we, I have siblings, we were talking about our family out in the world. And at first I just felt like, oh, is this some weird like European like sensibility? I was like, oh no, this is Holocaust trauma. And so, um, so I wanted to start with that because I wrote op-ed for 10 years and one of my most popular columns was about this realization that I had and how this this passed from generation to generation and how I really saw my role as trying to change the family narrative of what neighbors could be, that they did not have to be people who betrayed you. But that's my that's my work to do. That's not his work to do. And and so yes, he uh, I say he he loves this country as only an immigrant can. He feels like it gave his his family a new life. He did uh, sign up for ROTC in order for him to be able to go to college. They came here with nothing. And then yes, was was stationed in Germany. And I can tell you, he had some really intense conversations as part of when they did joint maneuvers with the American and German military because people didn't know he was fluent in German. And it was so clear that there was still very much denazification that needed to happen. And so all of these layers of his experience has helped me uh, both feel incredibly grateful that I'm here right. in this country and and the strength that he has shown throughout my life while dealing with this horrible trauma, you know, gives me strengths. And then you became a teacher. Yes. And and what was teaching, what did teaching give you to be able to share with students? Because like, I usually ask people like a teacher and what they meant to them, but I, you have such a rich history. And I also then haven't really spoken with somebody who was a teacher for a bunch of years, 14 to 15 years. Yeah. And I love to know like, what that experience was like, because you have a lived experience and then obviously you were a teacher, yeah. but being able to impart with young people and then perhaps how that then got you to understand that like you could also make change and educate through political work. And it's not a matter of which side, but just through political work. Yes, I, I really love, I love talking about my teaching past because it is a huge part of who I am. So in the teaching world, folks who teach middle school are often referred to by our colleagues as like 
those strange weirdos that want to uh, be living in a hellscape every day, okay? But I love middle schoolers because there's no filter. They'll just tell you exactly how they're feeling in real time. And my middle school years, when I was a kid, were some of my hardest years. So I was figuring out, yeah, it's hard. It's hard even if you're not struggling with your sexuality. But, you know, when you know at an early age that you are, are queer, and it's not something that is valued by society. You hear homophobic things about your teachers and your family. Like, it's really, really tough. And I think that's why I went into teaching middle school in particular, mm-hmm. because I remembered how lonely I felt. I had a lot of friends. I was a funny person. I was actually great personality. Yeah, I was great. All right. But inside. Oh, exactly. And that's what we struggle with, by the way, right. in our country where people are really feeling stuff inside and on the outside they look great. Absolutely. And I'm just hoping keep going because I want people to be able to hear this and understand that 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 those two things can both be true at the same time. That's exactly right. We hold we hold multiple parts of us. I mean, in eighth grade I was elected, you know, the uh most humorous person in my class. Not not surprising, right? We we do this many times. People who have have trauma, they they use that as a source of connection. But those were really dark years for me. And so I really wanted to teach at an age where I could truly make a difference in terms of everyone in my classroom feeling valued by me. Mm -hmm. Come as you are. Yes. Right. And create a space together so that, you know, we can all be in the land of misfit toys together. And it's, it's been incredibly powerful for me in my, um, in my political life, when my former students from years ago email me or call me and say, I can't tell you what it meant for me to feel just valued as a person in your classroom. And some of them came out as, you know, as gay or trans later. Um, But some of them are just, you know, people who needed to feel like when they came into my classroom, I was throwing my arms around everybody. And so I always say you can't teach middle school unless you believe in the possibility of change, like right every day. And I use those skills all the time in Congress, right? And so the- Well, middle school Congress- Well, we're not going there, but there could be some arguments made. Totally. And the tongue in cheek part of me is like perfect, you know, preparation, but on a more serious level, you have to be able to sit in discomfort and work through it. I agree. And so that, I think, really prepared me for this for this time and for this work. Mm-hmm. And I, I know that for a lot of teachers, they also feel seen by me in my role. When I talk about my teaching and as it relates to my, my work in Congress, that it isn't just about... Uh, you know, teaching a curriculum, it's about trying to hold the whole child and, and, and that value. And also connecting families to the classroom. We want families to feel like they truly have a connection to the classroom. So. Okay. So talking about families, it's a great segue. Yeah. Uh, talk about a little bit about your wife, your kids, as you feel comfortable, but yeah. the balance, because you do have to travel. You are yes. in DC a lot. Yeah. Um, that leaves a lot on your wife. That leaves for your yes. kids a, an interesting, because when you were in the state, you were local. 
much more. Much more, though I, I was, was still away. traveling. I was still bit. traveling a lot. But now yes. you're in D.C. for at least during the week. So exactly. How does that work? And how do, And obviously your wife has to do a lot, and she has to be a very special person. She is. She is a special person. She does have to do a lot. I, I couldn't do it without her. I couldn't. I couldn't. And, you know, I made a decision when the kids were really little to take a pause from my teaching and, and, and be home with them so that she could advance her career. I never imagined I would be the stay-at-home parent because I'm a middle school teacher. I know. I'm not a, I'm not a nursery school teacher. Uh, but she always said, you know, now now's your time. Like, I don't want you to look back yes. and think you didn't do the work you were called to do. And my kids are amazing and resilient and creative and curious and I try every single week to try to get home by Shabbat, you know. To be almost to the yeah. weekend and for Friday. Exactly. And and sometimes we can't quite make it, so we fudge a little. And sometimes we do Shabbat on Saturday. Um, but, but it's that time together. It's the coming together. It's the lighting the candles. It is all of us decompressing. And so, yes, I have a 15-year-old who's going to be 16 uh, next month and a 13-year-old. And they are used to the routine of me being away. Uh, we certainly, we, we text, we do FaceTime, we talk. Mm-hmm. But I think the thing that gets them through the distance is they're just so damn proud of me. I love it. They really are. And, and it's been an adjustment for me. When I was in the state legislature, um, Abe, my oldest, would ask, well, did you pass any good laws this week? <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> qualify what you did exactly but now he's much more hard nosed I walk in and he's like let's talk about your votes because he has his opinion right which is fantastic and it is you know they they are my rock they are my um my solace and I I don't know how anyone could be in elected office right now without having a solid base of support it's just so draining. It's so, it's so intense. And, you know, I've had to really train them all. Don't read the comments online. Don't weigh in on social media. My dad still struggles with this. I'm like, you're not helping me, dad. <laughs> but that, that's been a, a real training for all of us. Don't, don't engage. Right. Don't engage. Um, but it's, I miss them. Of course. Yeah. And uh, I, I understand also, that you rock climb and you motorbike. Yeah. Do you still have time for those things? No. <laughs> I very rarely get to rock climb anymore. Sometimes I'll go to a rock climbing gym right now. Just for the pleasure of the pleasure of it. But I do try to get out on my motorcycle whenever I'm I'm home. It requires incredible hyper focus. You can't think about anything else when you're riding a motorcycle. There's just too many So it's your way to shut off. Totally. Like you have to just be focused on the road ahead and that's it. And when you come off of a ride with this like complete sense of, well, I do, complete sense of relaxation because I've been so hyper-focused and then I can can let down. I wish I had more time to ride. I, I love that being uh, in that world of riding motorcycles brings me into contact with people I might not meet otherwise um my my daughter mocks me because she says i look like a mouse on a motorcycle she's just like i know you think you look cool mom but like 
kids give us reality but i love i love riding around my my hometown and i'll ride past the ball fields at the high school and inevitably i'll hear some you know teen guy say i think that's a girl as i arrive like yes and i love that and i I know that we are all a bundle of contradictions. So I am an environmentalist. I am someone who loves the woods. I also love my, unfortunately, my petroleum burning motorcycle. And that is the human condition yeah. right there. Well said. Um, what is the best advice you ever received and the worst advice you ever received? Okay. That's a lot. Yes. I will. I'll start with the worst advice because that just instantly be got in mind a few years ago i made a decision to be much more public about my struggle with anxiety and depression and how i dealt with it and the tools that i've learned and that it is not a sign of weakness it's a sign of being human and i was told by several uh it was interesting it was all male politicians the vermont older men who said you're making a mistake. This is going to ruin your career. Why are you doing this? It's too much information. People don't need to know this. And I felt so clearly at my core that they were wrong. But of course, like you have vulnerability hangovers, right? So then the next day you're like, wow, was this a big mistake? Right. Was this? And over and over again, regular Vermonters have stopped me at town meeting, at the post office, the grocery store saying that was such a powerful thing that you did. I felt seen, I felt understood. My husband, you know, struggles with depression or I struggle with anxiety. And to end the stigma, we have to, as people with a megaphone, as people who have the platform, we need to use it for good. And I saw this as a way to use it for good. And so that was- I'll just add to yeah, that, which please. is that it also shows the vulnerability of people that lead. Yes, you have a megaphone, but that you are real. Yeah. And in our country, there is the level of people that do struggle with anxiety, depression, and obviously then it results also in the drug issues. Yes. Is so enormous. There is not, I don't think, one family untouched, either personally or very close. Yes. So I don't know, bad advice, but I just say listening to it, thank you for sharing that. Because, you know, when, when you look about who you are, that's not something that, you know, pops up. But that is something that people can relate to so much more than what the latest policy you voted on. Exactly. Because it, it touches us. Because they remember how you make them feel. Yeah. Going back to your teaching. Right. They don't always remember what you said. No. They remember how you made them feel. And so that was terrible advice I got. Yes. I'm glad I didn't follow it. Good. I've been very lucky to have some really strong uh, mentors in my life over the years. And you know, one one theme that has has come time and time again is you have to step fully into who you are as a person in order to bring people to you. And that in in politics we're often told to put up a facade armor up. I've heard that all the time. Also from, from women who were trailblazers in politics. I understand why they say that. You got to armor up. People are at, asking more of you. They're demanding more of you as a woman. But I had some, some folks tell me really clearly that 
when you armor up, you are out of alignment with your own values. Right. You value connection. Like when I make a list of my values, that is like at the top, I value connection. Right. You can't truly connect if you are armored up. Armored up. You just can't. Right. And so are you familiar with Brene Brown? Yeah. Yeah. Pretty, pretty familiar. Like all these years where I've sent to everybody, yes, listen, exactly. listen, listen. Exactly. And she says, you know, strong back, soft front. Like, yeah, you got to know who you are. You have to know absolutely who you are in your core. And, and that cannot prevent you from seeking out genuine connection. So she's been a huge influence on my life. She said, and this is one of the phrases that I had to learn to also be able to like balance, which is choose discomfort over resentment. Yes. It would do something and then you would resent it and then you weren't being true to yourself. Yeah. Better to say, I'm sorry, I can't do something or that doesn't work for me than to like be struggling into with, within. Yes. Yes. And that is, that is absolutely something uh, that I still struggle with. Yeah. Like, right. It's a, but, it's, it, but it's still it's a lifelong piece. Yes. But as long as you're cognizant and you work and do the work, I think then you're healthy and then you yes. do all the things that you need to get done. And, you know, the other thing that I think about a lot is how vulnerability itself actually is kind of a superpower. Okay. That's great that you're saying it because one of my questions later right. is what is your superpower? Yes. So keep going, but yes, I guess the question that I think, but it's an important, I have, I have the ability to be completely and totally in the moment with people, whether it is someone coming to my office or constituents, constituents and, and, um, and that being fully present, bringing the phone away, yeah, making eye contact, leaning in, like there are the things that you can do. You can mirror the way people are holding their bodies in order for you to understand what they're they're holding. And so that is a superpower of mine. Certainly, being willing to be vulnerable at times when other people would prefer to go back into the shadows. And I am I am constantly amazed by how a tiny little bit of vulnerability and connection can build, you know, this this base from which true true connection is built. And I always say, so I do on um, leadership trainings and I always say that trust isn't actually built in grand gestures, okay? And I think that's where we, we get it wrong sometimes as leaders or bosses. It's not built in grand gestures. It's built in those tiny little moments. And so I, I, I love tiny little moments of connection. Yeah. And that is, that's kind of how I live my day every day. Okay. So, so, so now we're going to switch to a little bit of how you live your day every day with just rapid questions. Sure. Um, give people just a little bit of like enjoyment of what things are that mean to you. Yes, so, yes, yes. I love it. Um, my first question is, what is your favorite sound? The sound of my dog snoring. <laughs> What's your dog's name? Wheelie. Okay, so Wheelie snoring is one of your favorites. And he is on my lap and he is just so blissed out. That just calms me. I love him. Yeah. What is your favorite color? Maroon. Oh, great. Favorite smell? Pine. Like, you have that. Mm -hmm. uh, if you were on a desert island and you had one meal, what would it be? My wife will laugh at me. It will be pizza. <laughs> oh, well, I wouldn't laugh at you. That's it. That's <laughs> she says I eat like an, an eighth grade boy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's all good. Um, 
favorite music when you have time what music do you listen to if i'm trying to unwind at night i listen to jazz if i'm trying to pump up in the morning i listen to anything from acdc to brandy carlisle to the chicks to um more motivation more motivational stuff to like really um armor up but just like the work that we do as elected officials is hard please start with a smile on your face kind of thing yeah yeah if you could go somewhere in the world that you haven't been with your family yes. where would that be uh pompeii pompeii or herculaneum um i was a history a major have a master's in history i love that it's a, it, a literally a moment trapped trapped in time and so i that's on my bucket list okay yes uh, now we're going to switch over to a game which I've been playing with everybody. It's a short one, and it's it's a, there's different versions. We do kiss, Mary trash, okay, and basically it's a rating. <laughs> and there's other ways you can say, it, but what you would kiss, what you would marry, what you would trash. Okay, oh wow, it's a All right. rating game, and and there's just a few of them, but they're kind of okay. Are these women that you're asking me about, or no, no, no? Okay, I just want to know. Okay, I'm in trouble. Okay, you're going to be safe. Uh, so, um, the first one is, this will do this easy one to get you warmed up. Yeah, yeah, great. Breakfast, lunch, dinner. And by the way, I know that you guys in Vermont produce a lot of maple syrup, so. Yes, so breakfast is uh, Mary. Okay. Uh, lunch is trash. I hate lunch. Uh, dinner is kiss. Okay. Yeah. Uh, if you're going to relax, which is, you know, one of those things we all try to get in. Yeah. Netflix, reading, meditating. Okay, so I would say... Um, Mary meditation, kiss reading, trash Netflix. Okay. Uh, music. We kind of already have done yeah. it, but here pop, country, hip hop. So um, I would go. Uh, ooh, that's that's tough. That's tough. So I would say pop, country, hip hop. Okay. Uh, this is a really hard one. Yeah. Penne, fusilli, or spaghetti for your pasta? Yeah, fusilli is definitely Mary. Uh, penne is uh, kiss and spaghetti trash. Oh, gosh. Okay. Shay, what sauce would you be putting on that pen, uh, fusilli? I was curious. I like a red sauce. Okay. Cool. Yeah. With yeah. a lot of parm on top. Yeah, a lot of easy. Yeah. There goes the... It's Vermont. Exactly. I was going to say, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I was going to say, another form. It's yeah. Um, and then my last one is the seasons. And yours is different than others because you're from Vermont. Yes. Which are summer, fall, winter. Yes. So this is easy for me. So Mary is fall. I got married in the fall. Uh, kiss is winter. And summer is my least favorite because I hate the heat and humidity. Yeah. And you're okay with the winter and the, and the snow and the cold. We always say in Vermont, no such thing as bad weather, just bad clothes. So, okay. Well said. Well said. So this is my last question, which I ask each person. Yeah. What is your definition of joy? What brings you joy? And how from being joyful, and we've sort of talked about it, how do you share your joy with others? Joy for me is being wide open open-hearted to the world and the way that I show it with others is as I talked about before trying I try to find joy in tiny little moments of interaction right throughout my day that's what keeps me going when I'm not able to do that I my anxiety and depression creeps in and I have always said to folks on my team um, we must find the joy in humanity 
or else we're, we're not going to do a good job at our work. And, and uh, a couple of the folks that I interviewed as the, the earliest hired in my office, you know, I said, if we are known as the, like the kindest, most joyful office on the Hill, that's, I'm okay with that. And that exactly. feel fulfilled and successful. That's right. You're doing. That's right. That how we do our work matters. It's not just the product that matters. How we do our work matters. Well, I appreciate everything. And it's really a pleasure to meet you. We have not met before. Yes, it's um, been wonderful. And, you know, I was thinking like, again, so many quotes, but Socrates said, wonder is the beginning of wisdom. Mm-hmm. And uh, he had some, he had an idea back in the time going back. Um, but, you know, there is that ability for people to listen and to understand that to open ourselves up is actually corresponding to wisdom and it corresponds yeah. to a life that is fulfilling. And you seem to be working on that daily because it is a daily work. It's not something, it's not a light switch. You don't turn it on and off. Yes. But it's something that we can all think about. And I want to thank you for coming here and sharing because your vulnerability just for me personally, has given me a strength. And I thank you for that. And thank, thank you. you for what you're doing for Vermont and for our country. Thank you. And uh, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. Hi, it's Liz. Please join me every Tuesday for coffee to talk about heart and humanity with our elected leaders. Ciao.